you have called us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're thankful to be a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance that supports and, and makes it possible for missionaries to be all over the world doing your work. And we're thankful that in this day and age, we have the opportunity to be a part of, of your work in different parts of the world. And we, we pray for the Dominican Republic, the ministry that Envision is doing there. Uh, we pray for your blessings. We pray for your glory to be seen and known and celebrated. We pray that many more people would come to a, a saving knowledge of you. We thank you for this team that went, and we pray that you would continue to help them process all that they saw and experienced and learned and help them to apply it uh, in their lives back here. We pray that you'd use them for your glory uh, here as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, before her death in 1997, Mother Teresa spent her life serving the poor in the slums of Calcutta. She did not seek fame or power. Her goal was just to simply care for those that the world sought to try and forget. But she won a Nobel Peace Prize, inspired millions, and stood before presidents and kings. Pope Francis was Time Magazine's 2013 Person of the Year for similar reasons. Time Magazine gives this title each year to someone who has had a major impact on the world for good or bad. Pope Francis won the title this past year, even though Miley Cyrus was in the top 10 finalists. That's so sad. Called the People's Pope, Francis uh, has rejected the typical lifestyle of a pope, choosing a more humble one instead. Pope Francis wrote a letter to the new cardinals-elect earlier this year, and in that letter he asked them not to view their new position as a promotion. Instead, he wants them to see it as a new area of service that requires a broader gaze and an open heart. Now, I don't necessarily affirm the theology of either one of those people, but their lifestyle is difficult to just casually dismiss. All of us want to be part of a community where people consider the needs of others and take action to meet them. And when we see people who, who put pride to death and serve others, it's attractive, or at least it should be. Even though we will celebrate it on occasion, like uh, has happened to Mother Teresa or, or Pope Francis, humility and service are not always popular virtues in today's society. Most job postings don't say humility and a servant's heart required. But humility and service are foundational to the gospel brought to us in Christ. We would not have the gospel if it were not for the humility and service of Christ. And we cannot live the gospel life we are called to as believers without humility and service. We've spent all summer in a series entitled Life Together. And throughout the series, we have sought what it will take to become a gospel-centered community that will love each other well as we reach out to the world around us. This is my uh, final sermon in the series. Lord willing, Michael Talley uh, will wrap things up for us for, for the next two weeks, and then Scott Andrews will return from his sabbatical. My prayer through this series, whether I was preaching or not, has been that we would not merely listen to the word and so deceive ourselves, but that we would do what it says. James 1, As we begin to open God's word this morning in Mark chapter 10, I'd like you to imagine 
that Jesus Christ in the flesh is standing in front of you. And I'm not talking about me when I say that. He asks you this question. What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? In our passage this morning, Jesus will ask that question twice. He will ask it to James and John, and he will ask it to a man named Bartimaeus. So if you've got your Bibles or some electronic device that has a Bible on it, turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 32 through 52. And if you're able to stand, I'd ask you to stand as we read God's word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn, condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant to us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with, it, with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our passage breaks down into three parts this morning. We'll, we'll start by looking at Jesus predicting his death. Then we'll look at the request of James and John. And then we'll consider blind Bartimaeus. And in the midst of those passages, uh, I'm going to pull out some other scriptures as well that I think will help us see that a humble community 
is a helpful community. In verses 32 to 34, Jesus tells the disciples that he is heading to his death. This is the third instance in a rather brief amount of time in Mark's gospel where uh, Jesus speaks of his coming crucifixion to the disciples. They do not understand what he is talking about. Here, Mark tells us that they are all headed to Jerusalem with Jesus walking ahead of them. This is our Savior. This is our King. He walks ahead of us. He did that in the flesh, and he does so even today from his throne. We are never asked to go somewhere he has not gone. We are never asked to, to, to endure some temptation that he has not experienced and endured himself. We are never asked to do something he has not already done. The scripture is clear in these areas, and I hope that that encourages you. Jesus goes ahead of us. Mark tells us that the disciples were amazed and others who followed were afraid. Why? Well, consider what had happened in recent days. Peter, James, and John had witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain, hearing the voice of God in the progress or in the in the process. The disciples and the, and the crowd had witnessed Jesus heal a boy with a demon. Jesus had already spoken of his death twice, which which made very little sense to them. Jesus had provided a brief teaching on marriage and divorce. We see that at the beginning of chapter 10. And his teaching, well, it took marriage to a whole new realm. And Jesus, he had let a rich young man walk away, saying that he needed to sell everything if he was going to follow him. This teaching seems so hard that Jesus' disciples asked, if that guy can't be saved, then who can be saved? This is why some were amazed and why some were afraid. Surely this man was was more than a man, and yet he was not at all what they were expecting in a Messiah. Jesus pulls the twelve aside, and he tells them that he is going to die and rise from the dead. Of the three predictions in Mark, this one is the most detailed. Look at verses 33 and 34 again. See, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. That is, in fact, what took place. It is the content of the gospel. Jesus was delivered to be crucified according to the will and plan of God. He rose from the dead so that sin and death could not have its way. Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection saves those who confess and believe that this was necessary and actually happened. If you don't believe that those things literally, historically happened to Jesus for your benefit, You are not a true believer. And it is here that we have the primary reason why we should be a a humble people. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was the only way for us to be saved from our sin. The wrath of God needed to be satisfied and it was either going to land on Jesus or it was going to land on you and me. Jesus in love took our place, not because we deserved it or earned it, but because he is gracious and loving. 
in a way that we could never be apart from him. The disciples at this point, they, they still don't understand what kind of Messiah Jesus was to be. They had a very different one in mind. So shortly after Jesus' prediction of, of what awaits in Jerusalem, James and John approached Jesus with a request. Matthew tells us that their mother was a part of this request as well. And they essentially ask Jesus for a blank check. Verse 35, do for us whatever we ask. It's a pretty bold thing to ask. Jesus asked them, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? Their reply reveals what was in their heart. They want to sit on Jesus' right and left. They want glory and power and position. Now, I suppose that is somewhat understandable. James and John had definitely been granted some privileges that the others had not, except for Peter. And of course, he's not in this scene. They're clearly trying to cut Peter out. This is selfish ambition. The kind that Scripture condemns in Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Listen to it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Pride has been a stumbling block since the beginning, and it is an enemy that we will fight until the Lord brings us home. John Stott says, Pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. In Isaiah 14, that passage seems to speak to the fall of angels led by Satan. And it was pride that led them to seek the throne. And 2 Peter 2.4 says that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell. Their pride and selfish ambition for the throne of God led them to hell, And it can do the same for us unless we repent and kneel before King Jesus. Pride was, was the root of Adam and Eve's sin. Indeed, pride and selfish ambition can be seen in every tragic scene within the pages of Scripture. And it can be seen in every sinful moment of our lives as well. Now, although James and John serve as the negative example here, all of the disciples struggled with this. In Mark 9, we learn that all of the disciples got into a really big argument about who was the greatest among them. Consider Stott again. He says, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Humility is an honest assessment of ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Humility counts others as more significant than yourself. Humiliate, uh, humility should permeate a Christian community 
if the community is constantly gazing at the cross. But oh, how sinfully easy it is to take our eyes off of the cross and think of ourselves as worthy, certainly more worthy than others. Jesus' reply to James and John is, in my estimation, surprisingly gentle. He tells them that they have no idea what they are asking for. He goes on to tell them that this position isn't even his to give, an indication of the son's humble submission to the father's. And although they likely missed it, Jesus does gently warn them that their life will bring suffering as well. At this point, the rest of the disciples catch on to what is happening and they are indignant. That is, angry, resentful, or outraged. That response, it should break us. The disciples weren't sad or broken at this request. They didn't want to gently restore their erring brothers. They were mad. The sinful ambition of James and John made them mad, even though they had been arguing about who was the greatest just a few days before. Each one of them wanted exactly what James and John were asking for. How easy it is to condemn in others what we tolerate or excuse in ourselves. We're all guilty of that. So Jesus calls the 12 to himself. That is grace. That is grace. How often does Jesus do this? How often does Jesus call self-absorbed humanity to himself? He does that instead of damning us to hell. This is grace. Jesus calls the 12 to himself and he says, authority typically thinks of itself and acts for its own interests, but it cannot be this way among God's people. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. There is no corporate ladder to climb in the kingdom. And then Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is likely the key verse in Mark's gospel. An entire sermon could be devoted to that one verse. It is a very rich verse. Jesus' life was marked by servanthood and sacrifice, and he calls all of his followers to be marked by the same thing. Does servanthood and sacrifice mark your life as a follower of Jesus? Does servanthood and sacrifice mark Alliance Bible Fellowship in Boone, North Carolina? Life together, built on the foundation of the gospel, is fueled by servanthood and sacrifice. Without it, we've just got flat tires. We're not going anywhere as God's people, as individuals, or as a church, unless we are humble servants willing to sacrifice for one another. Jesus put on a towel. He put it around his waist and he washed the disciples' feet. And then he willingly let the towel be stripped from him and he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. He did this to save us from our sin. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. If the Son of God walked this earth and humbly served to the point of death, we should not be surprised at God's reaction to an arrogant heart. 
I spent some time pondering the connection between humility and service this week. I don't have time to go down every path I went down in my study, but I want to put a few things out there for you to ponder personally, for us to ponder as a church. If pride is at the heart of every sin, of every act of disobedience toward God, then pride would be the sinful root of a church with few servants. A community that that serves one another and serves the lost around them, that would have to be a humble community. Pride is self-concern and selfish ambition. Pride filters everything through the grid of self. Pride says, I cannot serve or sacrifice for you because that won't help me. And it might negatively affect me in my time or or my agenda. Atheism is the ultimate expression of pride. John Piper says it this way, the safest way to stay supreme in our own estimation is to deny anything above us. Pride views others as less significant. Pride prevents service to others because you see yourself as above them. Now this could express itself in thousands of ways, thousands of ways. Let me illustrate just a few ways it it could affect a church's mindset. Let me be more specific. Let me illustrate a few ways it might be affecting our church's mindset. In Mark 9, 33 to 37, when the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, Jesus put a little child in the midst of them. And he said, if you want to be first, you're going to have to be last, kind of like this child. And then in verse 37, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that when you serve a child, when you receive a child, it's as if you're serving and receiving God. God counts receiving and serving a child as receiving and serving him. That is amazing. And if we believe that, we will seek to do that in some way besides just with our own kids. But here's a common comment that I have heard over the last 10 years that I've been here from people without young children. I just think the parents ought to work in the nursery or in kid zone since they are the ones with children. Translation, I'm not going to serve them because that doesn't benefit me. That would take time or energy that I'd rather devote to someone or something else. Most mothers of toddlers feel like they are drowning every day. The toddler years are hard years. When you tell a mother of a toddler that they should come to church and serve 15 other toddlers, you are essentially saying to them, I know you feel like you're drowning and you could really use an hour of corporate worship or adult conversation in the commons, but here's a cinder block, just keep swimming. Now that I've pushed on those without kids, let me push on younger generation, college students, people in their 20s, people in their 30s like me, so I'm picking on my group now, okay? I've heard college students, 20s and 30s, over the last 10 years, at times, express frustration when we don't completely cater to their, their musical and aesthetic tastes on a Sunday morning. This is also, I think, a selfish mindset that's, that's rooted in pride. Here's what you're saying. I really like this church, 
And I'd like it more if it considered me and my tastes more. I'm grateful that the older crowd here served and sacrificed for years to make this church what it is today, but I think they just need to step aside so that this church can be a bit more progressive for me and my generation. Essentially, you're saying, thanks for the inheritance, but you're in my way. Consider this with me. Statistically speaking, and I I mean this gently, statistically speaking, the older crowd is closer to eternity than you are, college junior. Don't you want the older crowd connecting with God on a Sunday morning? I do, and I don't want them going somewhere else to do that. So I'm willing to sing a couple of old hymns. There are people who have served and sacrificed in this church for 25 to 30 plus years. And I am not about to arrogantly push those people to the side. There's this mindset among many Christians today in America that that you should leave a church service completely satisfied by everything that took place. And it should not involve serving others who are completely different from you because that would involve sacrifice. That kind of thinking is not humble. It's not servant-minded. It's not the kind of thinking that creates gospel-centered community. It's the kind that creates a club with people just like you. Now, I don't think I've veered way off course here. If Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, Mark 10, 45, and he calls us to the same life, these examples are just a tiny sampling of the ways we could humbly flesh out what it means to live life together as Alliance Bible Fellowship. So last week, we heard that life together embraces diversity of all kinds, and that is so true. And embracing diversity will involve serving one another in the midst of that diversity. It will involve saying, this ministers to you, so I'm going to minister to you in that way. And this ministers to me, so if you can help minister to me. It, it, it involves us considering one another and serving one another. One other rabbit trail. I won't run down it far, but, but pride has a lot of cousins. Anxiety is one of them. Listen to 1 Peter 5, 6 to 7. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. According to that verse, one of the ways we humble ourselves is by casting our anxieties on God who cares for us. Anxiety can be related to pride. Pride can express itself in anxious living. Anxiety is typically linked to the person who's concerned about themselves, right? So here's the gospel paradox that makes life together so wonderful. When I constantly look to get my own needs met, I never feel like they are completely met. But when I begin to meet the needs of others, when I begin to live for them instead of me, I find that God graciously takes care of my needs in the process of meeting other needs as well. So the call to serve one another instead of being served, it has great riches in it. It has great joy in it. With the time that we've got left, I want us to briefly look at Bartimaeus in verses 46 to 52. This man is a blind beggar. When he hears that Jesus is passing by, he calls to him. He's asking for mercy. Those around him sternly tell him to shut up. But he kept crying out all the more. 
and don't pass by that too quickly. The crowds will always seek to prevent you from seeking mercy from Jesus. They'll always seek to prevent you from seeking mercy from Jesus. Don't let them do that. Bartimaeus drew near, and we've got to do the same. When the world tells us to shut up, may we humbly cry out to Jesus even louder. So Jesus hears this man's cry for mercy, and he calls for him to come near. Bartimaeus doesn't meander over. He jumps when the Son of God calls him. And here in verse 51 is the same question that Jesus asked James and John. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus asks for sight. Now, I want you to notice the contrast there. James and John asked for honor. Bartimaeus asked for help. James and John wanted position. Bartimaeus wanted mercy. James and John said, exalt me, Jesus. Bartimaeus said, heal me, Jesus. He didn't ask to be superhuman, but simply human. He didn't ask for wealth or power or success or glory, just sight. What most of us take for granted, normal health, is very precious to those who do not have it. When disease takes up permanent residence in your life and in your home, so much of what the world values just seems so unimportant. This blind beggar had a faith that pleased the Lord. Jesus gave him what he asked for, and Bartimaeus began following him on the road, the road that was leading Jesus to the cross. The road of humble servanthood and sacrifice. If Jesus were to stand before you and ask, What do you want me to do for you? What would you say? Would you ask for power and position, or would you ask for mercy? You can learn a lot about your heart by pondering which one you would ask for. I'd like everybody to bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to read a couple passages of Scripture. I just want you to hear them and meditate on them as we close this morning. 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Colossians 3, 12 to 13. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brother or sister, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Mark 10, 35. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isaiah 66, 2. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
May the Lord transform us from selfish consumers to humble, faithful servants for his glory, for our joy. Amen. As we continue to uh, meditate on that message, let's stand together.